Welcome to the House of Jordan podcast, episode 18. I'm Christina. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Christina's PC. And I'm here with Brian. You can find me on Instagram at Joden Cards, J O E D I N Cards. And Chris, you can find me on Instagram at Chris underscore H O J. You can find me on Twitter at House of Jordans. And this is the only episode we'll be doing this week. So just one House of Jordans this week. And before we get into the content of today's show, um, it was a big day in Los Angeles. Kobe Bryant's uh, ceremony, celebration of his life, was today at the Staples Center. All the basketball luminaries were there. Michael Jordan gave a great speech about Kobe. And uh, yeah, I don't know. What did you think about it, Christina? So I was at work today. Unfortunately, I couldn't get down to the Staples Center because I have to pay bills and buy cards. So I was at work and I didn't get to see Michael Jordan's speech until I got home. And I just saw it a little while ago. I thought it was funny that he uh, riffed on himself about uh, his crying meme. And I thought it was a very touching speech. It made me pretty sad. And then I stupidly did not click cancel and the next video played and Vanessa Bryant came out and she started talking about her daughter and it made me bawl my bloody eyes out so I'm a little on the depressed side right now um but I thought it was beautifully well done and uh I'm in awe of that woman's strength and the possession of emotions that she has because I couldn't even watch it without looking like a hot mess. So I don't know how she stood up there today. Thoughts and prayers to the Bryant family and everyone else who, everyone else's family who um, died in that tragic accident. Yeah, for sure. Jordan gave a great speech as he always does. He doesn't make that many speeches, but when he does, they're always fun to watch. One of my favorite speeches ever is is his Hall of Fame enshrinement speech mm-hmm. when he talks about the agenda that the NBA and some of its players had against him. Right. He had to fight against that. And, you know, he, he relished telling that story. He always, he's, he's just got such a competitive edge to him. Still, he, he loved the, uh, the adversarial nature of what he was up against trying to carve out his legacy in the league. And the Kobe speech was great too. And he brought a lot of levity to it. He talked about how Kobe was essentially a little brother. An annoying little brother. A nuisance. A nuance. Yeah, a, a nuance. Nuisance. Fucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm really like, yeah. Yeah. He talked about how Kobe was a nuisance to him. He would text him at all hours of the night, ask him the most random questions. And, you know, George said it was very endearing to him. And he had obviously nothing but great things to say about Kobe. So, Here's what's coming up on the show today. Three segments for you. Card store tour. What? what? Uh, First time we'll be bringing that segment to our new shortened format. We're going to look at the flurry of auction activity that happened last week and last weekend and take a holistic look at the card market. And then we're going to talk about a New York Times article called A Billion Dollar Scandal turns the king of manuscripts into the Madoff of France. And, of course, we will draw hobby analogies to it. So up first, Cards Tour Tour, and this is a three-parter. 
for the Card Store Tour. Uh, we, over this weekend, in fact, on Saturday, went to, Christine and I, two card shows in Garden Grove, California. And then we went to a new card shop in Manhattan Beach. So first, let's talk about the Card Pavilion card show at the Elk Lodge. Sure. Uh the Card Pavilion Card Show, as Chris said, was at the Elks Lodge in Garden Grove. Um, we weren't entirely certain we were at the right place at first. There was no uh, advertising outside. Uh, and there are a few gar- uh, Elks Lodges in the area around Garden Grove. But we made it inside and we... Everyone was super nice, like always with these card shows. Um, we got to talk to a lot of collectors and find out what they collect. Um, there were a bunch of tables set up. They well, not up- a bunch. There was a, a dozen, maybe. It was a smaller show. A, I would say a dozen is a bunch. Oh. Like a bunch of bananas yeah. is like six. So Okay, well, two, yeah. then there was two bunches. Two bunches of... <laughs> Two bunches of tables. Uh, there's also a PSA rep. And I think what I took away from what I most took away from that show and the next one was the thirst and hunger in Southern California for card shows and hobby hangouts. Uh, we saw a number of people we know from Los Angeles uh, who drove down to Garden Grove for these shows? Was we, it pretty packed or well attended? Um, no, I mean we got there very early. Yeah, okay. we got there really early, about like, ten ten yeah. thirty a.m. And it started at ten. And there was also the Long Beach Coin Expo, Expo was going on, right? Which has right. sports cards tables, and so, there were two shows in Garden Grove plus right. the Long Beach Expo. So I think it was a very busy weekend for the hobby. Yeah, and I think like a skilled picker can go through shows like this and find value but for a more casual peruser uh like us it's just a bunch of overpriced and not particularly interesting cards what kind of cards did they have like modern or was it more 90s or what was it so it was a, a lot, lot of baseball. Of <laughs> yeah. There was one guy who was set up who was just like selling off all the cards that had come out of his various breaks. So there wasn't any coherence to the presentation. It was just, you know, a series a of dollar boxes. Yeah, right. yeah. So there wasn't like, oh, this guy has a bunch of LeBron cards or something like that. You know, it was right. like just a rows and rows of um, just flipping through cards. Kind of yeah. Thing. Well, it seemed like a lot of the people we spoke to who had tables at that the elks lodge were collectors who were selling their pieces like who were selling pieces out of their collection yeah but it wasn't like we've been to card shows prior where like this is what they do they go to card shows and they sell their product like even long beach like those are sellers right so this is more like collectors with their like kind of showcasing their pcs and being like, and then trying to sell pieces yeah Yeah, i would say that um so there was the elk lodge and then there was a show nearby like a mile or two away yes uh bng sports collectibles spring training show right which was at a boys and girls club in garden grove which there are three boys and girls clubs in garden grove so we went to two before we (laughs) 
finally pulled over and someone looked at his Facebook to find the address of the correct Boys and Girls Club after we had driven to two separate Boys and Girls Clubs and then were on the road to a third. And little did we know that there was a fourth Boys and Girls Club, which was the real Boys and Girls Club. Wow. That we... It's all about that chase. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, one of my laziest moments because, you know, the phone is sitting there with the GPS app open and I'm like, I could close the app and go over to Facebook and just look at the flyer for the event, but it's at a Boys and Girls Club and it's nearby. Right. So let like me just... pull over to the gas station and ask for directions. You yeah, just don't you just do can't that. do that. No. no, we don't need to do that around <laughs> here. I should have just turned the app off and just allowed instinct yeah, to senses, steer me. To guide you. Look at the sun. You know, we probably... Yeah, would, next time, that's what we're going to do. Because that would have got us there, I think. <laughs> that would have got us to the right one. In fact, you probably could have blindfolded me. Yeah. And just, I could have felt my way. Maybe if you hold like a Luca, Luca Gold up and <laughs> Little guide you in the right direction. See, like, uh, we needed Brian there. When is you're what going this really for means. water, uh, what is that called? Going a for a water? No, <laughs> compass. No, it's like it's a thing. It's a very nuanced it's a takes for me today. It's a thing that people like people used to do in like the 1800s. They mm. would like find what water wells. Okay, and it's like a water stick and certain people would like go around with their water stick and they'd be like, oh, it's vibrating. There's water here. Wow. No, that's okay. a thing. I swear I, to God, I'm sure that's a thing. Is, yeah. Okay, well, uh, there were Cut no that part out. There were no water <laughs> sticks at the B and G Sports Collectible Spring Training Show, uh, but there uh, was about twice as many tables mm-hmm. at that show. One table had some pretty sweet Jordans. Ooh, okay. Some there was like a Luca Silver Prism PSA ten. Now I should also add that even though we got there early. Both shows had already been browsed by the hardcore okay. guys. Yeah. I mean, you those know. guys get there right when it opens. Yeah, exactly. And they find everything. That's what you got to do. It's competitive. It's just like it's like going on eBay and you're the first one to see a listing. Like. Yes. Yes. So that was a cool show. One guy had a lot of raw, like low-end Jordan inserts. But again, you know, the and not this guy, but a different guy. I wanted to buy something small. Yeah. And a guy had Optic Cello 2019-20 packs for 30 bucks, And those are 22 bucks with free shipping on eBay. You know, come on. It's, yeah. It's just, it's, it's too, it's, it's just the overpricing. It just gets to be too much. Right. So, but the, the shows are fun. It's always cool to see some of the local, you know, hobby leaders might call them or the you know the well-known local hobby guys they all go to these shows and like christina said we could use some more in southern california we could also use a different format too to be completely frank like the show format of the 80s and the 90s it's just a little antiquated i'd like something that's totally new and you know i was talking to coleman cards and like we were kind of brainstorming on something and this is a little bit corny it maybe it's very corny but like a club like a like a philosophy club at a college or something where just people get together in a group of maybe 20 or 30 and they all in advance think of something interesting to bring maybe a new card maybe something to say maybe an observation everybody kind of gets together has a snack or a drink or something and just talk you know and 
and have a sense of community and discussion and trades can be facilitated, but there's no vibe of like dealers, you right. know, and there's no nothing just just well, all these I always find that card items. shows it's awkward for me to walk away from the table. That is and tough. I don't too. know what what it is, but like I I'll be standing there and I'll talk to the person and I'll ask them questions because that's just who I am. And I find out about them and what got them in the hobby and what they collect and what they prefer. Um, I find out they're not on social media, which Chris will get into. And then uh, there comes a point in the conversation where I just want to like walk away because I don't want to buy anything. And like, I, I think that I'm also just awkward in general, but like I never know how to disengage properly. And I always leave that to Chris and then just follow him away. <laughs> yeah, you do just have to walk away. And it's weird because you want to make a connection with these other collectors. You want to network with them on social media. You want to see their PC. You want to share enthusiasm for the hobby with them. But they're looking at you like, are you going to buy something or not? You right. know, I got inventory that I want to move. Right. And I don't like that dynamic personally. Yeah, it becomes less like of a social kind of situation, more of like a, a buying kind of situation where you go to a store and like you can't just linger there. You got to like either, you know, try some stuff on and like act like you're going to buy something or get out of there, you know, like so I don't know. But then it's also you don't want to mislead people by like being like, oh, yeah, can I see this car and stuff when you, if you're just trying to like check it out. Yeah, and it's, it is because like when I go to these shows, I am just going to look at cards and to talk to people and stuff. Right. It's, it's rare that I'm buying anything. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe they just don't want our types at their thing and we need to start our own thing. You know, yeah. that could be a thing, too. And what Christina alluded to, this, this social media thing, it astonishes me how many people that we meet at these things who have not only are they not on social media or part of the hobby social media, they don't even know about it. Right. And it's the overwhelming majority at these shows. And it kind of makes me think that there is so much of this hobby that's in, in a totally different realm than yeah. those of us who are active on social media and active in hobby content creation that we're a part of. Right. You know, everybody's in their own like little vacuum, it seems. Yeah, exactly. Now, on the flip side, after the two shows, as we were driving home, Christina was like, hey, why don't we stop at that new shop you were talking about, Jaspies in Manhattan Beach? Yep. And First of all, what a great location for a card shop. It's like beautiful. To yeah, it's cool. And it's a it's a few blocks from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh it's in a in a really cool space. Um it's got its own parking lot. It's in a really nice part of well, every part of Manhattan Beach is nice. Yeah, right? I was gonna say, what are you talking about? A nice part of LA <laughs> yeah, called Manhattan that, Beach. Right. That's what yeah. <laughs> and you go inside this shop and it was it was really cool. It was awesome. So um, the whole front is glass. So you can see like right into the shop, which was really cool. Um, pure glass doors. And when you walk in, there's a center circle of display cases with singles and wax in the cases. And someone's working there. It's like an island in the center yeah, of the exactly. store. It's like an island. And then to the right is a bar with bar stools. Hmm. Yeah, maybe like 10 to 12. Yeah, with quite a few bar stools with backs, which I always find important on a bar stool. And (laughs) um, there's four flat screen TVs mounted above the bar. Like, so this guy was sitting there with a bunch of wax in front of him. The girl who was working the counter said that he was 
live on Instagram and you could see what he was doing because his back is like to the shop. Hmm. So I thought it was really cool that like there are games on above him. He yeah. has car uh, wax in front of him and you could just sit down at the bar and watch him break live on Instagram. Now let me say and what the, the part that I thought was really cool. Oh, uh, okay. All right. So there's the Instagram live area. To the yeah. right. And when you look straight ahead. Yeah. In the back of the shop, there are two large rooms that have, they look like if you were in a recording studio, you know how you have a big glass window mm-hmm. and you can see the artist in the soundproof right. booth with the microphone in front of them. Well, they had like big glass windows like that, that you could look through into these rooms. And then they had, you know, movie set lighting and professional microphones and professional cameras. And they were, there was a guy in one of the rooms who was performing a live break. And I don't use the word performing loosely. He was very professional. It was like voyeuristic in a sense, as I just kind of walked past and I, peeked in and I see him like really doing his thing and like showing the cards that just came out and he put on a very professional voice and he was enthusiastic and it just looked very professional. It was really cool. And there was two rooms. So I imagine at more busier hours, there's potentially three, like basically studios going producing breaks and who knows what other types of hobby content that they're making And outside the door of the break room was a bigger flat screen TV where you could watch what he was doing on the inside. (laughs) So it was very, it It felt very 21st century. It was very 21st century. Yeah. That's not like your typical old school. No, this was, this was, this just felt new. And even the interior design, it had these exposed industrial pipes that had all been painted, black and it had these cool sunlights that really made for a cool ambiance in the shop skylight skylights yeah i guess we're not in a car is it are they even called there's sunroofs skylights there's skylights and um great lighting to just Mm -hmm. everything was bright cheerful everything was like super clean yeah it's also brand new um and they had comfortable chairs that Chris took a seat in after standing around all day at card shows. And then, um, they had like a Pokemon, uh, magic gaming, like counter with that stuff, uh, to the left. It just felt like what, uh, what a card shop that we of our generation would like to go to. It felt like that more modernized. Yeah different spin yeah exactly so like we bought a box of 1819 prism cello we did and uh that's pretty rare we have not bought much wax at At all all. no this season you know but we wanted to support the shop basically and uh because it was a really cool shop yeah so i guess they're gonna they've done at least one trade night and they'll probably do more. She said every other month they're looking at right now. See, that's not enough. That's <laughs> well, it's new for them. They're a brand new shop, so let them get their feet under them. Yeah, but, but um, I agree. We need more in Los Angeles. Overall, a good card store tour. For sure. All right. Topic two, auctions, the sports card market in general. Over the last week, we have gotten an enormous amount of data and let's take a look at it. The first thing I want to look at is the Michael Jordan market. And here's the first thing I want to talk about within the Jordan market. So 
collectors of all stripes and all players and all sports kind of know about the BGS versus PSA dichotomy. And generally speaking, especially with modern cards, the advantages of BGS are that up until very recently you had a guaranteed turnaround time and you can get the cards in and back quicker. But BGS 9.5 with the subgrades, you get started getting into these distinctions of true gem, which is all 9.5 or better subs and a 9.5 overall grade versus like a 9.5 overall but 1.9 sub or a dirty gem, which would have 1.85 sub and 3.10 subs. So like the 9.5 is viewed generally as being a slightly lower grade than a PSA 10. And then a BGS 10 is viewed as a higher grade than a PSA 10. So like those few BGS 10s out there command the biggest premium on the market, but then PSA 10 commands the next biggest premium. And then BGS 9.5 comes after that. And then PSA 9 comes after that. And then BGS 9 is below all those. But it's not that way in the Michael Jordan market to the same degree. Generally speaking, PSA in the Michael Jordan market does get a small premium, not like the premium we see, for example, with Lucas Silvers or something like that, where the premium is like 30 to 40%. You see a smaller premium most of the time. But there's also lots of exceptions in the Jordan market. And there was two at PWCC's auction number two last week that ended in which BGS substantially outsold PSA. And those two examples are the 1995 Skybox Premium Larger Than Life. The BGS 9 went for 380 bucks. The PSA 9 went for 250 Now, those are both low prices. Um, there have been higher comps in the past six months on both grades for that card. I, I mean, I, I'm familiar with those two cards because I was watching them as well. Um, I, I think... It's for those cards, and we know why you might see it a little lower. Is like it can vary so, so much for like what a PSA nine and a BGS nine actually look like, and like for these like the BGS nine, I remember the front had like not like not immaculate corners, you know, and uh, for the PSA, the back had some rougher edges on it too than the BGS nine. Well, and that feeds into a point that I wanted to make that or that that supplements a point I wanted to make, which is when you talk about collectors looking beyond the grade and looking at the card itself and with PWCC auctions, it's, you know, the perfect opportunity relative to your normal auction on eBay to do that because you get the very high resolution scans and you can see all the chipping, uh, especially like on the backside of an all foil card like this, There will be massive differences like $380 versus $250 based on the actual eye appeal of the card. And when you take into consideration that PSA tends to get a small premium and then you look and the BGS 9 gets a massive, the BGS 9 sold for 50% more than the PSA 9 did. Well, that kind of speaks to the nature of the people who are buying these Jordan cards. And then with respect to these being substantially lower than some of the recent comps for these cards that's what happens with pwcc auctions Mm -hmm. that are in the lower mid-range we've covered this on previous podcasts it holds true still today pwcc will register auctions in that price range well below comps just it just happens that way well i mean you look you look at this too and 
you know, it's different when you have one PSA 9 or one BGS 9 up at auction at a time. But when you have two of them going and they're both ending at virtually the same time, it creates, like, an oversupply of the market. So then, like, you're not going to get the same comp. Like, if one of those was taken out, you might have seen one of the, like, you know, the BGS 9, let's just say, go for 450 maybe. Absolutely. Then the other card um, that... BGS substantially outsold PSA was the 1997-98 Fleer Thrill Seekers Jordan insert. The BGS 9 went for $800. The PSA 9 went for $676. And so yet again, there's probably an eye appeal thing going on. Um, But, you know, I think there's also in the Jordan market uh, certain collectors, I know several, whose entire PC is BGS only. Yeah, And when they run these polls on the Michael Jordan collector groups on various, you know, social media platforms, BGS almost always wins when collectors are asked which grading company they prefer. Jordan collectors like BGS slabs. Yeah. And so, and that's reflected in the in in these price discrepancies that we sometimes see where bgs will outsell psa and if you told that to a collector of trey young cards right they would they're they wouldn't believe it you know because that's so contrary to how the market works for modern players but here we are jordan you have i mean most of the time psa is more than bgs but like it is this weird thing where it seems like though, like the collect, like Jordan. When you talk about a Jordan collector, like they like the BGS, they like BGS nine a lot too. Like, you know, a lot of collectors that only collect BGS nine or BGS nine point five. You know, uh, I don't know what it is. What do you think? Is it the subgrades that make people want that more? Or? I think it's the subgrades. I think people like the way they look, just the slab itself. Right. They like the thicker slab. Yeah. I think also that it, it's also kind of an accident of history. That it just kind of so happened that some of the trend-setting Jordan collectors built very influential PCs early on. Like, he got game 15, a Jordan collector from the early 2010s, um, who built you know one of the first great Michael Jordan 9.5 insert PCs. And inevitably, when Jordan collectors start kind of Googling around and looking up Jordan cards like this picture always shows up of his wall of like 25 of the very best Michael Jordan inserts and they're all in BGS 9.5 and so for me when I first came back to Jordan collecting this was one of the very first like aspirational pictures that I saw and I was like I want that you know that's really sick and there's there is something really cool about the presentation of like a whole layout of Jordan inserts all in nine fives. Yeah, I think that's definitely huge. And I think there's also something to say, be said about like having all your cards being just either, you know, one grade in general by one company. Like that's a big deal. People just like that consistency, like across. Um, there's also, you know, go, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, what would you say to like a new collector, either of Jordans that is trying to get into the market? Like, should they, care whether something's like a a psa 10 or a bgs 9.5 or does it really matter that much you know like what should that thought process be i think jordan collectors the jordan market is very 
precise. So when you see discrepancies like these BGS nines selling for more than PSA nines, there's always a pretty good reason for it. Maybe it's the eye appeal of the card itself in the slab. Maybe it's just the fact that on this particular occasion, there were guys who wanted uniformity with BGS slabs in their PC. So I would say you have to be very particular. You want to look at the pop reports because Jordan collectors take those very seriously. If a card has like a significantly lower BGS 9.5 pop than PSA 10 pop, that will result in a premium for Jordan cards. Same thing goes for BGS 9 versus PSA 9. Uh, Those discrepancies matter. And there are cards for which that's true. An example that comes to mind off the top of the head is a cut above insert. Mm -hmm. There's one PSA 10, if memory serves, and there's a few BGS 9 fives. So that one PSA 10 is going to command a substantial premium because for some reason PSA is it has a harder, you know, standard for grading these. And then the inverse is true on a card like Rave Reviews. The BGS 9.5 pop on that card is much lower. So um, those are considerations uh, that are very important uh, when the when you look at the market for these cards. Right. You kind of have to do the research, it seems. You absolutely have to do the research. And you have to ask yourself how obsessive compulsive are you about the presentation of your pc right i have an assortment of slab i have psa and bgs and i have grades ranging from psa 5 to bgs 9 5 to psa 10 right so you know it's 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 about how how much do you care because there was there's some guys who couldn't stand that you know, type of PC that I have, right? They would want, they need everything to be BGS nine or better, or yeah, at least everything yeah. in a BGS slab and preferably all BGS nines or something like that. Yeah. I think it, you know, ideally if everybody can assemble the perfect PC, that's kind of what they would love to have. But at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, for me and probably yourself, like you sometimes sacrifice, things to build your pc in the way you wanted to, to to build it and sometimes you know maybe you only want to get a grade of a eight five or a nine of a card because you don't want to have to worry about getting that psa 10 or bgs not vibe even um and some people can't do that but i mean at the same time if you do do that it allows you to you know get different cards too and build your pc in different ways so absolutely and you can get into weird situations where like there's a guy who has an only BGS 8.5 Michael Jordan PC and he will send cards in to get graded. And if one comes back like a nine or a nine five, he's disappointed, <laughs> you know? And like, he's like, I want that flaw. Give me that. Yeah. He's like, something. what do I need to do? I need to crack this out and like ding a corner, you know? <laughs> and then the last thing I would say about why the BGS brand is maybe more successful with Jordan cards is a lot of Jordan collectors have a strong, history rooted in collecting during the 90s mm-hmm. and that's when the beckett magazine and the beckett brand right. was just at its zenith right. and it's still a very very successful brand but you know their the distribution of their magazine was phenomenal in the 90s and so i think jordan collectors attach a little extra value to that beckett name right so i think that kind of uh, factors into why BGS gets a, a premium in that niche particular market as well. 
talking now about a different Jordan card that um, and is having interesting market results. The 96-97 Chrome PSA 10 Michael Jordan base card is on an absolute tear. And this was brought to my attention by a collector who said, like, what's going on here? And I looked at it and tried to figure it out. So it's a Pop 101 for the PSA 10 of this card. And this card could have been had for 61 bucks in April of 2018. It shot up to 230 in October of 2019. And then it shot up again. It more than doubled to $487 on February 11th of 2020. And there's one currently at auction right now with seven days left. That's at $360. And so this is a base card. Right. And usually, you know, the Jordan base cards, you can look at the, like the early 90s upper deck Jordan base cards, which are awesome cards. But they haven't moved much value-wise in the years, all the years I've been back on the hobby now. They've been pretty much in like the 20 to $40 range consistently for year after year after year. Right. But here we have a base card that's taken off. And, you know, some of the things you want to think about, I think, when trying to explain how that could be is the first year of Chrome. It was a key rookie class. There's only 101 PSA 10s, and there's set builders out there mm-hmm. who are trying to put together PSA 10s. I mean, some of the rookies are in that class, Allen Iverson, Kobe, Steve Nash, very important rookie class. Right. So in a prestigious set to put together because being the first year Chrome, in the first Chromium card, yeah. it kicked off a uh, a trend that still continues to this day with prism and yeah i think and that's the foundation of it right that's got that optic thing now and like you know everybody's went all in on that for luca and you you got you got lebron james you know tops so yeah and there are some other base cards that do pretty well and that do go up and the the common trends seem to be that they look great Mm -hmm. they have low psa 10 pops Right. You know, and they're the set itself is an important set, like ninety seven, ninety eight Metal Universe, you know, those PSA tens right. continue to do very well. So, you know, it's it, it even base cards uh can can appreciate significantly. It's not just yeah. the inserts and the and the parallels. Especially high graded ones like a you know, a gem. Absolutely. Next up the ninety six ninety seven Flare Showcase Legacies. Out of 150, BGS 9.5, Michael Jordan. This is a pop four. This card is important, among other reasons, besides just being beautiful. By the way, it's the row zero. Uh, It's the first true serial-numbered Michael Jordan card ever made. The first sale on eBay of this card is for $850 in 2006. card was worth about $1,600 in 2013. It sold for about $13,000 last week which is eight times more than the previous sale, which was in 2014. So, you know, this was the first time for this card being auctioned off in a little under six years. Yeah, that's crazy. For this card to enter into that five-figure range is substantial. Yeah. um, Because these legacy parallels are highly coveted but there's also seven of them right. across the 96 97 and then the 97 98 flare showcase sets so you know for that card to to reach those type of heights you know i think there's a couple of things going on there number one there hasn't been many cards that would be considered jordan grails uh at auction period 
right. over the last six plus months. Yeah, it's been quite the drought. This was quite the drought. This was one of the biggest Jordans, you know, to hit '90s Jordans to hit the 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 eBay auction block in quite some time. So I think there was some pent up demand, right, uh, to try and get a card like that. Uh, but it, it's also an indicator of the general market trend for Jordans as well, which is, um, man, these cards in the last month or two, Jordans, you know, we talked about scoring Kings doubling yeah. last episode and the, you know, here you got a card going up 800%, um, since its last sale in 2014. Yeah. I mean, especially since, I mean, it, it hasn't hit the market, you know, like you said, six years, like that's a big deal. So like somebody that wants this card and has been, you know, looking for it, it's probably been looking for it for a few years now at least. And to be able to finally get it, it's going to drive the price up. It will. And it, that was hardly the only card to set a record high. There was the 97-98 Skybox, Z-Force Rave Reviews, PSA 9. It's a Pop 19. Last August, that card sold for $2,000. Last week, it sold for 4000 Now, Jordan cards don't usually, especially when you're talking about a doubling in value that equates to $2,000 in absolute terms right. um, for one of these beautiful low pop inserts like that. But you still don't usually see it double over, you know, six months. Right. Huge jump for that card. The 96-97 Flare Showcase Hot Shots BGS 9.5. Last September, that card sold for about 3700 Last month, January, it sold for about 4800 this card historically has always followed a peak and retreat pattern. When it would hit a new record high, the next few auctions would come in below. So, like, you would expect that this one would have sold for maybe like forty three hundred, but last week it sold for fifty three hundred dollars. So, no peak and retreat here at all. Yeah. And there's an importance to a card breaking that psychological five thousand dollar barrier. Right. And this is um, a highly coveted Jordan card. It's one of the most iconic inserts. And, uh, you know, $5,000 was a, a hard-fought battle for that card from the perspective of the market because it's just ever so incrementally and like a like the tortoise and the hare just right. slowly climbing, but then it yeah. just kind of exploded. I mean, it's a beautiful card, so yeah. I, mean, I think people that are just getting into the market, too, for that kind of level of an MJ, they see it and they're like, yeah, that's the one I want. So having offered that survey of the landscape of 90s jordan cards you know we start to think about what's going on here and uh you one of the parts of the explanation has to be this last dance documentary that's forthcoming yeah that we'll be releasing this summer we won't go into too much depth about it now because we'll talk about it more as it gets closer um but suffice it to say jordan collectors are excited about this it's a 10-part documentary series and, uh, you know, people are really looking forward to this sort of reminiscing and nostalgia reliving Michael Jordan's final season with the Bulls. Yeah, and from a new light, which will be really interesting. So what does it mean that Jordan collectors continue to pay more and more? I mean, I'm at that ripe old hobby age now where I can remember the time when Hot Shots <laughs> 9.5s were a quarter of the price that they're selling for now. 
Um, you know, and I see that people keep paying these higher and higher prices. And like one of the things this means is that the newer Jordan PCs are going to be smaller in size because what $5,000, even after adjusting for inflation, that still could have bought you like four times as many cards as it can buy you now. Right. So like PCs are going to be smaller and of, of the newer collectors, right. especially that feeds into that cycle of, of FOMO, you know, where you're like, well, in 2024, like what kind of 2020 PC can I afford? You know, <laughs> no, that's very, very true. And, and I say to that, that's okay. I think that it's nice to have a smaller PC you know, yeah. you don't need dozens or hundreds of slabs. Yeah. And having fewer um, means you appreciate each one you have a little bit more. Right. And you spend a little more time uh, focusing on it and enjoying it. The pop of all these Jordan inserts, I mean, I should I should run the numbers one day. But, you know, uh, Luca Prism Base, the 2018-19 Prism Base has 8,500 graded copies. I mean, I bet if you added up the pop of all of the, you know, Jordan inserts that are in the four figure or more range, I don't know, would it be 8,500 or more? You know, maybe not. Um, So this is a very relatively, especially to the modern card market, this is a very small pool of cards to draw from. And so it's okay if they get more dispersed across more PCs and each PC that they land in, they, because it's a, it's a relatively bigger part of that PC because the cards are more expensive. So the PCs are smaller that the card gets appreciated more and, and focused on a little bit more. I think that's, that's maybe even a good thing. And then the other thing though, is that Jordan collectors have always been extremely tight fisted yet these prices keep going up. And I mean, you know that, I know that, Christina knows that. We know this from experience trying to, when we have to sell Jordan cards. Everybody wants a deal. Man. like every single time. And like, you don't even have to wait that long to sell at market either because people are willing to pay it. Yeah, so like people drive a hard bargain. You know, if you want to circumvent that, you can always just send the card to an auction house and get a fair market value for it. But um, the thing that I think about here is that there's a lot of Jordan collectors who were very disciplined and they never wanted to pay more than the market value, even if they could afford it. Right. They didn't want to overpay. They wanted to get a good, fair market value deal on cards with the market value at the time of the deal, obviously. But the same people who two years ago, you know, would have bargain very strongly against you on a hot shots nine five for like 2500 mm-hmm. are buying it now you know for 5300 right and so what that says to me is that these guys have never been maxing out their hobby budgets mm-hmm. they've always just been very diligent purchasers and they've always been willing to pay up to the fair market value at that point in time so that's interesting to observe because you have to wonder at what point do these Jordan prices get so high that Jordan collectors are reaching the max of their budgets. Right. Um, but we, we haven't hit that point yet. And then you also have a bunch of new collectors coming in too. And, you know, they feel like they have a lot of catching up to do. Right. So then, you know, you get much fiercer, uh, competition for the cards, but 
in light of that, you know, I always kind of intuitively recognize that. And so my philosophy over the past four years had always been, I'll overpay for a card. Um, I, I'll, if it's 2017, I'll pay the 2018 price. Right. Cause I know I'm going to be here in 2020 <laughs> and, and I know what these cards are likely to do and the direction that, you know, the market for these cards are likely to go. And that that's always been a way to be ahead of the curve in the Jordan market is to focus on the most coveted cards and to not be afraid to, to pay over fair market value to get them. I mean, I think definitely within that, um, the MJ market itself, I think people, when they're actually buying, they just want to make sure they're getting a fair deal no matter what. But in the long run, the whole MJ market is going up while these prices are going up. So if you are a collector of MJs, you could, you know, sell some other cards and then reinvest it at the same time at that current, you know, market rate into a different MJ. Like your PC's value is going up as these prices are going up. So theoretically there, you should be able to kind of swap interchangeably between cards. Yeah. And a final note on um, philosophies for how to navigate the Jordan market now, people need to honestly me i need to find more creative ways to be able to get that next grail for yeah. my pc because you know 2020 prices have effectively priced us out yeah. of of some great great cards that are on my bucket list and but i'm i'm just practically speaking i'm priced out but is there a way to be more creative to get into these Jordan grails. And one way might be to, you know, apply basketball knowledge and hobby knowledge by prospecting on new young players. Yeah. And to sort of finance the acquisition of these virtually unattainable grails by creatively, you know, making money on prospects. Yeah, I mean, it's a hustle to be an MJ collector. It is not an easy thing. Um, I think that's why the barrier to entry is so high with it, too. People are very intimidated by the market um, because there's just so much out there. And it's like, what do you buy? There's so many years. Uh, so, But at the end of the day, you know, you have people that are out there that are trying to, to buy these cards still. And the market just keeps getting more and more strong and you know you have to be that much more you know creative with how you're going to be able to obtain these kind of cards yeah so as we proceed next we're going to talk about the luca market and then we're going to conclude by talking about the market for some of the other very hot players right now and you'll notice that the multipliers on these people and their cards are far greater than the Jordan multipliers. So, whereas Hot Shots is already a substantially priced card at fifty three hundred, keep in mind that last September it was it was thirty seven hundred, and now it's fifty three hundred. So, you know that's an appreciation of about thirty three percent. So, keep that in mind as we get into talking about, for example, we're going to talk about the Giannis Orange Prism BGS nine five, which from July of last year to February of this year has appreciated 450%. There's ways that you can navigate the the current modern card landscape and if you're successful and strategic and lucky, honestly you need all those things yeah. to go in your favor. Then you need to be careful because these markets are not the stable 
incremental growth that the Jordan card market is. They're very different. They're very dynamic and well, fluctuate. Higher risk, higher kind of reward scenario playing out there, especially for you know, depending on what player you're choosing. Absolutely, but you know that's one way to back backdoor your way into like a Jordan Grail, right? Right. Is you know so like a great example to keep going with the Giannis Orange Prism example. So the Jordan, uh, we just talked about the the Row Zero Flare Showcase Legacies one fifty BGS nine five, which sold for twelve point seven k. Now, had you bought. The Giannis Orange Prism RC BGS 9.5, that was $4,500 in July of last year, and now it's 18000 Wow. Why do you always have to bring up the orange prism of anything? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking Giannis out of uh, I don't care. I'm still sitting over here like, getting more and more depressed as well, the let me night drive goes the, on. Let me drive the point home. That $14,000 profit... Um, supposing that you know you you bought then and you sold now, right. covers a grail like that Jordan card. Right. Whereas, if the other alternative is I'm just gonna save my money uh, each week off of my paycheck or have some other income stream and just kind of like have a savings account approach to it, yep. you know, maybe that's a better way for some people to go about it. Uh, maybe it is, but it's going to be very difficult, at least from my perspective, to just come up with $12,700 to get into a Jordan Grail like that. You know, yeah. when that card was in the $2,000 range, you could, you could do it that way. Right. You know, you could put aside a piece of a few paychecks and get up to that card, but it's not working like that anymore. Right. So last question on Jordans, what card or what cards are up next um, to see these, these sorts of, of bumps? Right. And I have, Three, and I'm not saying that these cards are going to get and see bumps, but I do think that there's something worth paying attention to here. And, you know, people on their own can go and look at market trends and maybe try and see for themselves what's happening. The 9697 EX2000 Net Assets BGS9 Jordan, that card has been flat. It's been in the $225 to $300 range since September of 2017. The 9596 Skybox EXL Natural Born Thrillers PSA 9, that's been 300 to $350 since February 2018. So those that's two cards that like over a period of multiple years have been in the same price range. Right. The 9596 Flare Hot Numbers BGS 9.5 has been about 700 to $800 since April of last year. So even that card's coming up on a year of price stagnation. Yeah, and we've talked about that one too in terms of how it's a little cyclical, but it's it's weird that it's been stagnant for so long now. Yeah, those are three great looking cards. Cards going up, right? You know, and it it is mysterious as to why some are stagnant and others aren't. But you know, th- that's three great looking cards that are still in an affordable range. Um, yeah. You know, that have been flat for an extended period of time. That could cut two different ways. Maybe they're flat just be- is is just because they just. They don't get the hobby appreciation that the other ones do. Right. Or, you know, maybe they're just not on people's radars right now. Mm-hmm. And if they start to see a little bit of market movement, people say, ooh, I forgot about this card. I like this card. And then it can create a compounding effect where a little bit of energy gets infused into the market for these cards. If the price ticks up a little bit, they come onto people's radars. People start buying them. Yeah. That reinforces the price 
continuing to go up and then you know these kind of start on an upward trajectory right and you see other people that you know the other cards are going up you're like well i want to get something like you said you can more afford than that other ones. now let's talk briefly about the luca market so great controlled experiment happened the Luca Blue Prism from his rookie year, 2018-19, there was an off-centered copy in December that sold on PWCC for $2,080 raw. The same exact card, same serial number, sold on PWCC this month on February 20th for $2,013. The card, in other words, has been flat. In fact, it even went down a touch. Yeah. Luca's PSA 10 base prism is up a touch in early february was around 200 to 240 dollars now it's 250 to 275 dollars so it's had an a small but incremental increase in Mm -hmm. value so like looking at those two cards as representatives of the luca market between like december and now because we know that late october and november saw an incredible like four five six x right type of appreciation for some of Lucas cards. And we saw the silver prison PSA 10, for example, go from like $550 range preseason to a peak of $2,400 the day after the Mavericks beat the Lakers by like 16 or 15 points at the Staples center. And that card has come back down. You know, the Luca market has been flat since that December, you know, peak and then drop off. And then it flatlined and when we see the prices of like everything else of the marquee players going up a card a card's market staying flat is really more like it going down right so that market has been in a slump relative to some of these other ones i mean and why would you think that i mean right i mean what to me what what i see is you know there hasn't been that much hype or anything or news really around luca he's been injured a lot of these weeks and like you know, we had the all-star. There wasn't anything like crazy with that. Um, it just seems kind of like a, a period of, you know, not so much excitement, uh, kind of waiting for playoffs kind of thing. Well, absolutely. I mean, the level that he played at in November um, was, had he sustained that production yeah. level, it would have been one of the, you know, five all-time great NBA seasons by whatever metric you want to use. Right. So he was playing at like goat level basketball. And then he sustained the ankle injury in December, but he was also kind of regressing to his mean mm-hmm. a little bit even before that happened. And then that corresponded with the release of 2019-20 Prism. And so all of the people who were interested in like speculating on him, right. And really like taking that gamble of getting into his product and like trying to rip packs and get to his big cards, you know, they moved on um, to the new prison product, which at the point of release, 2019, 20 prison boxes were 400 to 450 bucks for a hobby box. And at that same time, 2018, 19 prison hobby boxes were going for about 800. Right. So there was a better price point, new rookie class, new excitement, new products coming out, lots of factors working against Luca and his market. And then you also just have the, the, the fact that, his market got about as high as it could get for a prospect with extremely high population, key prism cards, meaning, you know, the base and the silver prism, just unprecedented high print runs for those types of cards. And he played 
basketball at a level that was just unreal, unbelievable. And so it's especially like coming into the season, nobody saw that coming. Right. Um, so all that built up to what we called in a previous episode is Luphoria. Right. You know, and then I think that it wore off. Yeah. And now we've seen a settling of his market. Right. But there's still plenty of dynamic range for his market as we close out the season, as anticipation for the playoffs builds. And then the variable of how will the Mavericks perform in the playoffs, right. you know, will be extremely important to the short-term prospects of his card market. Yeah, and I think the influx, the influx of like the 2019 products, like Prism, you know, even Optic and things like that, is definitely going to have an effect on how card prices go from now even till playoffs. You know, some of his 2019 stuff might go up higher and that you know that could just be the function of the fact that it's at a lower cost right now and like an entry point right now for somebody that wants to just buy luca card it's way easier to get a 2019 card than to get a 2018 card so those factors always play into people's decisions when they want to buy you know different products they do and we'll see what happens when this year's national treasures comes out but unlike the rest of his market or at least unlike his you know middle range market the rpa out of 99 has consistently gone up so at the end of november a bgs9 sold for 25k in the middle of december a raw sold for 45k another raw sold for 40k the first week of january then we had the infamous jersey number bgs95 sale that's seven the number 77 out of 99 at the end of january that sold for 237,000 we had another raw for 44,000 that same day at the, towards the end of january and then uh last week uh psa9 set a new record um for a nine grade or a raw of luca it sold for $48,000 right so that the ntrpa market is still going up um, but, you know, will that change when the new uh, National Treasures product comes out? You know, it'll be interesting to see. And then a BGS 8.5 of one of the Luca first off the line out of 20 cards sold for fifty five grand okay. in that auction, too. So if anybody out there is sitting on those uh, first off the line boxes from 2018 19 national treasures you know that might be a good thing that might be that, that might be, be a fun it. box yeah. to uh, just have sitting be there fun to rip be yeah. fun to rip too expensive to rip that thing yeah you never no know. it's not <laughs> yeah we might be able to rip it <laughs> i think i think we a goal. we might we might rip it so i'm gonna let the cat out of the bag here brian held his um christina and i ripped ours that we got at release uh, for the unfathomable $750 for a first off the line national treasures box last April um, from Panini's website. I mean, you can't even get 2018, 19 prism hobby boxes for $750 now, or maybe you can, maybe like roughly that price, but we ripped ours. We got a coast design to Decumpo out of three, we did. Uh, RPA in our box. And so Christina has a theory about what might be in Brian's box. The Luca out of three. It definitely could be. And that's why I can't sell it, you know? <laughs> can't night. sell it, can't rip can't it. Rip, can't sell it, can't rip it. What gonna, would you do? I'm just going to get him like super drunk one night <laughs> and be like, sign this piece of paper and let's rip this. <laughs> so I know at least two of the three Luca first off the lines out of three have been accounted for. What would you do if the third one was in your box? Well, I mean, since it is in my box, I kind of want to just like keep it, 
you know, in the box. Off, yeah. Right? You know, is it, that's the most pristine part about it. So, you know, I could sell it as the Luca being in the box and then hopefully that would have a premium <laughs> attached to the box. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I, the way I think about it, at least up until now is, uh, my hope is that one day I can just rip it because I don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, it's cost X amount, you know, that's, that's my hope. And then I can get to that. That's probably already passed as that moment did kind of exist at one <laughs> point, but now it doesn't. So, right. um, I'm hoping to, that that's, that's my goal with it. Last time I looked at the value of those boxes, they're between like eight and 10 grand. Yeah. That sounds about Yeah. Sounds and then right. after the out of 20 just sold for 55 grand and the national treasures, RPAs continue to set record highs. I have to think that the value of that box and the desirability of that box just keeps going up. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, once the 2019, 20 national treasures, you know, product comes out, Still, these these cards for Luca at least because it's his rookie year. I think those are going to still sustain. I think they're going to keep on trucking along. I mean, that is the coveted card. You know, it's the rookie card. That's just something that I think is continue to go, is going to continue to go up. Unlike you know something like if you have like the more base or the silver, where you're going to have that more fluctuation um, in like a cyclical nature. So we talked a little bit about the Giannis uh, orange prism, so we won't rehash it here. But suffice it to say that a nine five of Giannis's rookie orange prism out of sixty went over a period of seven months from four and a half thousand dollars to eighteen thousand. The Giannis prism twenty thirteen fourteen base. We talked about this just a week or so ago. Yeah. It's already up to fifteen hundred dollars. When we were last talking about it, which was not long ago, it was around a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. Yep. Preseason, it was five hundred dollars. Remember, wasn't Gary V talking about buying these up? Well, you might be you might be onto something there. Yeah. Gary V released a video not long ago where he talked about he bought fifty copies of the two thousand three oh four Topps Chrome LeBron PSA ten rookie card. Yeah. And he bought those at around a thousand dollars. The last comp as of tonight was $5,300 for that card. And there's two dimensions to a card's scarcity uh, or its rarity. And sometimes collectors like to you know use two different terms. They like to say a card is rare if it has a low print run, but it's scarce if it very rarely shows up on the market. Mm. And so if you have somebody come in and take 50 copies of a card like that off the market, and let's say I should have looked at the PSA pop report before the show, but let's say it's around 2000. I think that's about what it is. Mm-hmm. If you we take talk about it on the show, <laughs> we have just too many numbers to <laughs> yeah. keep up with. But yeah. if you, if you grab 50 of those off the market, I mean, you've like taken a big chunk out of the available supply from the right. perspective of scarcity, because there's plenty of people who aren't going to sell that card. Uh, especially when the price is going up, yeah. you know, nobody wants to sell and then see the value of it continue to exponentially grow. Like I remember we had contemplated, you know, you were talking about maybe I'm going to sell my first off the line national treasures box. when It was like three or 4,000. You, right. you weren't going to, but you were just like, I'm thinking like, just rationally, should I? Right. And then if you had, then you would see the value of it now and you'd be like, man, I really wish I would have held it. Right. Right. And people right. think of like that when it, so like when prices yeah. go up, people hold onto their cards even tighter. Yeah, they do. And they kind of think, Oh wow. You know, I, I, I was successful. I made the right call like, or whatever, you know, and, but anytime you, you get a card like that too, 
for a goat. It's his rookie card, and he's still playing, and he's coming up on you know his final seasons with potential to win a championship. That all just accumulates into this you know huge amount of hype. It sure does. Um, some of the other stuff that sold. A Zion 2019-20 Prism Gold BGS9 sold for $29,000. Kobe, uh, the Kobe market's been very interesting to watch. Uh, the 96-97 Chrome Refractor PSA9 sold for $9,000 on January 21st. It sold for 12000 on February 4th. It's up to 14000 as of last week. That card's on a steady uptick, um, but it's moving up quickly. But on the other hand, the 9697 Chrome Base PSA 10, um, it's now selling for $3,000. It's dropped substantially from its $6,000 to $8,000 peak that happened during late January. And it's it's not often that you see the value of a card on the open market at auction get cut in half in yeah. absolute value terms, three to $5,000. To see that type of drop off over such a short period um, is very, very rare when the rest of the market is just on fire like this. And then another interesting Kobe to note the 2009 National Treasures Notable Names PSA 10, which is a card out of 99, it's a pop one. This card sold for $7,000 in December. Same card sold again last week for $30,000. This is a trend we see in the Luka market. We see it in the Jordan market. We're seeing it in the Kobe market and the Giannis market. The high-end rare cards appreciate faster. They appreciate more in terms of absolute dollar amounts. They appreciate more in terms of percentage. But these prices are also very exclusive and cost-prohibitive to the vast majority of us. So the conclusion, like we said, I mean, the entire market for the marquee players is just going up. But nonetheless, there are there are still ways to lose money, uh, <laughs> even despite all of this uh, flourishing. And and I, to my dismay, made a bad purchase from a financial perspective, from the perspective of collecting. I love the purchase, but you know, it's worth discussing. The, the ups and the downs of participating in this market, especially after I just kind of got done talking about how prospecting can be a way to finance your way into grails, but it doesn't always work out, right. uh, at least not in the near term. So here's what happened to me. The Luca Prism Far Out 2019-20 card, it's a one of one. We got this card on December 4th for $2,600 after tax. Then we paid another 50 or 60 bucks. I can't remember to have it graded in person at BGS. It graded at BGS nine 0.5 away from gem, which is disappointing, but it's a one of one Then to my dismay on February 9th, a LeBron far out black one of one. So the same card, but just LeBron, a BGS nine also 0.5 away sold for $2,161. Okay. So now let's put a little bit of context on that. How can we understand what this Luca might be worth now that the LeBron sold for that amount? And here's one way of doing it. So here's some other values of important low pop Lucas from 2019-20 Prism. Luca's black gold, which is out of five, sold for $2,600 at BGS 9.5. That was on February 8th. The LeBron black gold 9.5 sold for $10,000 on January 27th. So that's basically four times the Luca value. 
the Luca Prism Gold out of ten nine five sold for twenty five hundred. So roughly the same value as the Black Gold, despite being twice the print run. I think that's for aesthetic and legacy reasons. The LeBron Gold. Um, there's only been three raw sales. The raw average price is five k roughly. So the LeBron raw is about two x the Luca nine five. And then in in terms of gold shimmer, the Luca gold shimmer nine five sold at the end of January for fifteen hundred dollars. So that's like only about sixty percent of the value of the black gold and the gold. So like collectors are not valuing gold shimmer as much. LeBron gold shimmer raw sold for $3,375 in December. So that's about a two times multiplier. So in other words, the relationship in 2019-20 prism between LeBron and Luca is like, I don't know, three, four X basically. So does that imply that this Luca is worth, I don't know, 500 to $600? Like, no, I don't think so. No, no. But is it worth, at this point in time, $2,600 or $2,700, whatever we have into it? Like, no. I mean, it's not right. worth more than the LeBron. I just don't see how that could be unless, like, that LeBron auction was, like, a freakish low auction that ended at a bad time of day or something weird happened. And even right. then, you know. So, like, there, there's a good example of... I saw this card. I loved it. Felt like I just had to have the card. Yeah. I bought it at the absolute peak of Luforia, which was early December. Right. And it was also right when Prism was coming out. And like as we know, the value of new products is like almost always at its highest when the product first comes out, although there are exceptions to that. Yeah. And here's an example, you know, of a of taking a substantial loss on yeah. a great card of a of a prospect. Well, I mean, you have to think about it in the sense of you have to, you're almost paying that upfront premium for that, the fact that you know it's a one of one. So you're not going to necessarily always, can, you're not going to have the opportunity to, to buy it always. So you're almost paying, like you said, I'll pay, you know, 2021's prices right now, 20, well, 2020, right? So in the long run, will this price hold out? We'll see, you know. We will see. It's it's also worth noting that like the this Luca wasn't purchased for the purpose of prospecting the card. It was right. purchased because like I just felt um, that we needed this card for our PC. Right, and it's just such a a sweet card and like it led to a great story of when we went to panini and we were able to like actually take this card out and right. meet the person who designed it yep. makes for a really fun story and like a fun dimension of our hobby life that it wouldn't have existed hadn't we acquired it but you know from the financial perspective this can happen yeah this can this really can happen so that's important to keep in mind too but then again we're not prospecting luca for the purpose of flipping it into jordan's either like right. the luca pc is the luca pc right it's the guest house yeah that that keeps adding on yeah the, the growing guest house uh, so enough about the market now we're going to talk about a new york times piece that came out uh not long ago last week in fact and i want to send a shout out to 610 sports cards who uh sent this over um made for a very stimulating discussion and by way of uh, introduction to this article you know we just talked about this robust health of the market and in fact robust is like understating the case this is like a a bull run of epic proportions right. and then and a, a growth that this market and this industry is experiencing 
um, that is growth is a better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, uh, expansion. And the flip side of that coin is being cautious and diligent and careful and even carrying a healthy dose of cynicism and skepticism in your pocket and always being on your guard, um, and being, being aware and educated about what can happen in any market uh, that involves speculation and collecting and items that have markets that are you know difficult to monitor and track. Right. So with that said, the article, A Billion Dollar Scandal, turns the king of manuscripts into the Madoff of France in the New York Times. This article was written by David Siegel. To give a brief synopsis of the situation, there's this man in France who would purchase rare books and manuscripts, have them reappraised, and then divide the value into shares. He sold the shares like stocks to mostly middle-income elderly people. About 18,000 people bought in to this company at approximately a total of $1 billion. So uh, to give background on who this person is, his name is Gerald. I have not taken French. Let's just call him Gerald. Okay. Gerard. Gerard. It's Gerard. 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 (laughs) He paid premium prices and which caused Europeans to scour their collections and belongings, which infused the market with pieces of rare books and manuscripts that usually would have taken a hundred years or more to come to market. He ended up with about 5% of the global market for rare books and manuscripts. Just pause for a second. 5%. And now what was the raw number of items that he acquired? I've learned where thousand. No, no, that was the investors. That was investors. 136,000 items. Collectors, which are approximately 2,500 people across the world that collect in this market, which is like rare books and like manuscripts and stuff. Very niche market. And like the author explains, like, this is very different from paintings. Yes. Because collectors of paintings can display the paintings on the walls of their residence. They can use them as overt signals of wealth and taste. But these types of things need to be kept in sheaths, basically. And like, they don't get to be Climate control. Yeah. Um, And it seems like Einstein's like papers, Isaac Newton's papers, some other, who, who else did they talk about uh john f kennedy a handwritten speech yeah. uh frida kahlo uh letter twice kissed with red lipstick so uh, collectors resented him and quote this is what arrived to our quiet polite fair play market and end quote and aristophil which is the company was considered a disruptor to the market so let me explain briefly what this guy was doing in practical terms he was acquiring items these highly collectible items but he was able to finance it because he was selling shares of these items to investors who allegedly according to them and uh Gerard's lawyers dispute this, but according to them, there was a provision in the contracts that he signed with these investors that said that after a certain amount of time elapsed, 
he would buy back their shares from them at a certain guaranteed appreciation. So he was basically telling them, you know, invest in this art. This is an underappreciated market. The value of these items is going to go up. Just give me the money. You get shares in these items. And then in exchange, you'll get your money back a few years down the line. I'll pay you back at a minimum of X interest rate. I'll just buy your shares back from you. And in some instances, you know, I think one of the examples was um, he acquired an item for like 500000 roughly. And then he sold it. So yeah, so he acquired Einstein's documents in a Christie's auction in 2002 for $560,000. He divided it into hundreds of shares and then he sold it at a valuation of $13 million. And so like what was really doing the legwork here was the expert valuations that he was providing, right? So he was getting experts to appraise these items at significantly higher prices than he bought them for. And then he would insure the items at the price that they got appraised at. So you had these two layers of confirmation of this higher valuation that he was then using to sell shares. Right. You're kind of controlling the price when you set it at it, right? Yes. But the question remains, how do you value, say, a Mark Twain journal? No new ones are being made. This is a great, the great American novelist. And anyone who went to U.S. high school has an appreciation for Twain, whether you actually read Huck Finn or not. So the items after complaints were received to, uh, by the French government, items were seized by the government and they're now being auctioned off. But they're being auctioned off within the next couple years, yes, which you is have, flooding the market. There is something highly questionable about that from a very practical level. So we can l- step back and look at this situation. And basically, here's what you have. You have a guy who comes from a very modest background as a plumber and then had a stint in the military and he was able to, through this business that he set up, was able to place himself among the absolute elite high society types of France. And he was able to keep company with presidents and world-class celebrities. He opened a museum. He had all of these just essential collectible items. He had extraordinary wealth. He did you know, these outrageous displays, like something about he would have like these guards at the museum who would like dress in Napoleon, like infantry and soldier wear. Yeah. He was making a big splash. He was making a big splash and putting on a flair that uh, was reminiscent of like France's best years. So people loved him, but they also hated him. With a passion. Yeah, and it says here that uh, his profile might have peaked with his appearance in July 2013 on the cover of Winter Magazine. And then on November 18th of 2014, the police raided his facility. And so there's intimations in this article and sort of from Gerard's point of view that he was kind of singled out as overstepping his bounds and playing um in a in a in an arena that he just 
because of who he is, he wasn't welcome in. And then, you know, if you think about, here's a guy who amassed 5% of the entire market of this stuff. And then the government comes in, shuts him down, confiscates everything, and then they flood the market with it. Who's buying it? The same people who are complaining that he was, quote, an invasive species. So I think there's another layer on this. I think like two things can be simultaneously true. This guy might have been up to some nefarious things and he was still sustaining his model. You know, there's some investors in his program who went on the record to say that they didn't think that he should have ever been shut down because his business was perfectly solvent. Right. Um, but the article goes on to explain that, but the, the method of solvency was sort of resembling a Ponzi scheme because, mm-hmm. you know, you have to think, how do these investors get paid? You know, and his method was, I'll buy the shares back from you. And then some of the investors are saying, well, he never did buy the shares back from us or he didn't buy them back when he was supposed to. That's sort of the inherent problem with trying to, you know, make investment funds out of collectibles right. is that you know you can't just divide it into a sh- into shares without having you know a ver- a reliable market for buying and selling and trading those shares yeah, the liquidity there just doesn't really exist the value comes from the fact that you can own it and cherish it and show it to people and um, have a connection to the item, display it if it's a painting, or you know, I guess keep it in a sheath. Yeah. If it's a book, set, give it to a museum, lend it to a museum. But at the same time, if you're of modest means and you want to own a piece of history but can't afford the full piece, I think you you take a slice of the pie and you could say, I own investment in Isaac Newton's papers i mean there's apps now that exist right that you can like go and invest in like some crazy old like mclaren f1 or something like that like you know it's a few million dollar car or something like that and you can own like part of it like there are like similar kind of avenues that um exist to this that are completely legal and happening today and there may be an intrinsic value to being able to say I own a fraction of this classic car or something like that, but I don't think it's it's a very big intrinsic value. Yeah, these are investments, and people are doing them on the expectation that the share will go up in value down the line, mm-hmm. and that they can cash in, and that it's going to appreciate at a rate that's faster than more traditional investment means. So I think one of the lessons from this article on a very practical level, when you're talking about these high pop cards, it does start to resemble this model in the sense that the value of these cards is predicated on there being a a very large number of people coming in after who were willing to pay even more for it. And that seems to me to be from a financial perspective, an inherently risky proposition long-term and maybe even short-term. If somebody's sitting on, let's say, a, a big chunk of these cards and decides to flood the market with them all of a sudden, you know that could potentially negatively impact the value of that card for everybody who's holding it. Yeah. And then there's another hobby connection here that I see. So like one of the things that was really important to this guy's model was the expert valuations. Yeah. So he was able to present a very credible front by 
showing, look, here's an expert in this field. The expert says the item is worth this. I'm also insuring the item at that. So like, here's two layers, two reasons why you can trust that this is the value and that the price that you're buying the share at is a fair value. Well, in the hobby, we don't have the risk of that particular brand of corruption because mm-hmm. pricing really isn't based on expert opinion. Right. And that's a good thing because we have items that are selling more regularly at market, but there are inherent pitfalls um, potentially in the sports card model because instead of experts, what we have, we have comps. And comps on eBay they're only as as good as the as the people who are participating in that particular auction or that particular sale. Um, so we rely on the integrity of these deals to, in order to build market valuations. Right. For example, when you have an auction house like PWCC, um, they have practices such as if an item doesn't get paid for, it automatically relists. So you can do your due diligence and check items and see if they get relisted or not. And Sometimes what happens, though, is that the highest bidder doesn't pay, but the item still gets sold because it gets offered to the next highest bidder. If that happens, the item is removed from their auction database. So then you can contact them just if you want an extra verification and say, did this item get paid for? I noticed that it's no longer in your database, but I also noticed that you didn't relist it. And then they will confirm to you what happened with that item. So we have these certain things that are in place that allow us to do a little extra due diligence and research. And we're also such a small community that a lot of these cards, when they get purchased, we see them pop up on like a social media page or something, at least some percentage of them. But by the same token, when we're relying on comps, you know, you don't always know if that item got paid for or not, especially if it's not with one of the major auction houses who has a policy of relisting. So we know that sometimes cards get purchased and they don't get paid for and then they don't get relisted. And by the same token, we know of cards that get sold in private deals that never even hit eBay. And so then how are we supposed to figure out the market valuation on cards like that? So these are some of the inherent problems that we have with our business model within the industry is that we're relying on comps. So it's always good to be careful in approaching these types of situations. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I mean, in the terms of being able to at least have comps, I think... You know, at the end of the day, everything will kind of average out, especially with higher population cards. You know, you can see kind of a, a an established pattern. You're not going to get some crazy out of here, you know, variation from, the, you know, the norm for these kind of prices for a certain cards. So it's a good way to at least ensure that the market is performing in a consistent way. You know, I think we're kind of grateful to be able to have even tools like that, like eBay and everything now. Cause you know, before it, you relied on Beckett or something, the Beckett magazine that said, you know, they're the expert almost in this situation of, Oh, well, this is the, what the price of the card is going for now, you know? Yeah. The Beckett magazine was like a, an early eBay Yeah, because their method was they would collect survey data from shows and dealers and then they would aggregate it. And then they would use algorithms and models that they developed to sort of extrapolate values from there. But we've always, at the end of the day, depended on the integrity of collectors and the integrity of the actors in the market to properly conduct themselves. Yeah. And, you know, to a very large extent, they do. Um, So, like, one of the really interesting dimensions to 
you know, being active in the Michael Jordan card market is that especially once eBay imposed its sales tax, a lot of deals moved over to social media. Yeah. And when that happened, you know, suddenly we lost a lot of comp data. Yeah. But prices kept on appreciating in private deals and private transactions at similar clips mm-hmm. as to how they were moving when more of these deals were happening on eBay. So like for example, the rave reviews that we talked about, a PSA nine yeah. sold about six months ago for about two grand, and then most recently last week it sold for four thousand dollars. I know of several private deals that happen in the interim on the social media groups that represent the incremental steps in between two and four thousand right. dollars that we didn't actually see play out on eBay. Right. So there's a really interesting embodiment of information in these prices that reflects that the growth that the market is seeing, particularly in these like low pop rare inserts, it, it's happening like it's almost like a specter yeah. that's happening on its own. And even though we can't see it, yeah. when it manifests on the market every once in a while in much more in, in much smaller, you know, public quantities now because of yeah. you know the the numerous reasons for doing private deals. When it shows up on the market, it's still following the same trajectory that that we would expect it to. Right. It's almost like a, a subconscious thing of like, well, it's still going to be at that price because, oh, I saw it on Facebook go for this amount or whatever. And, you know, that just gets kind of built into the collector's uh, head, like mind of this is what that card is going for now. So I got to bid this amount, you know. That's exactly right. But with all that being said, um, there's understandably, especially in different markets that are newer, that, that have less of a, less of a resume and a pedigree mm-hmm. and a track record, but, it, but even in the Jordan market, in all markets, um, there's, a, there's an understandable skepticism about relying on comps, about relying on auction house data, about relying on things like a grading company's subjective assessment of the condition of a card about relying on self-reported deals where, you know, people are negotiating and they might say to one another, well, this card just sold for X in a private deal. So this, this is how much I want for it. And Mm -hmm. there's no way to really verify it. So there's a healthy amount of skepticism about that. Sometimes I think it becomes unhealthy, particularly when there's people who are driving agendas such as, you know, so so the market can work in different ways. You can have people trying to artificially inflate and prop up a market, just like you can have people trying to artificially deflate a market by creating panic, creating rumors, trying to cause people to feel overly paranoid or concerned by, for example, specifically targeting a a particular auction and saying, oh, look, this must be shilled because if you look at the bidding patterns and this, this and that. And I've seen people attempt these methods before on cards that I know were paid for just because these people would like to suppress the market for this card until they can get it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So you have lots of competing interests and social media becomes a, a format for them all to have a voice. And so, yep. you know, you have people working in both directions to try and spin market data in their favor. So that's why I say sometimes you can even get unhealthy levels of skepticism because there's people who are manipulating legitimate concerns towards their own advantage so that they can acquire a card at a cheaper price than they otherwise would have to. But having a level of cynicism and a level of pessimism, you know, some of the concerns that we hear across the border, like there's too many investors in the hobby 
overproduction is happening with modern cards in particular. Like we were just talking about comps. Are they always reliable? Is there shilling going on? What's up with trimming? What's up with fake cards? This cynicism and pessimism, especially when the market is as robust as it is right now, plays a very important function. It grounds people and it tethers people to the possibilities that there are bad actors out there. Yeah. The possibilities that maybe it's better to be patient sometimes. Right. Maybe it's better to wait and see. Maybe it's better to proceed cautiously to be careful. Stories like this guy, we don't really know exactly what happened. That will play out in the court case, and we'll see how everything gets settled and as all the evidence comes in. But you should always be on your guard. Be careful. Stay tethered. Stay realistic. And when we all do that, it's better for the health of our market. Yeah. It means that our market's going to grow more slowly. Yeah. It means that you'll see peak and retreat patterns in the value of cards. We want to keep a level of skepticism about things. We don't want it to be too easy and then we can be manipulated or have a wool pulled over our eyes. I think you you said it perfectly. I mean, I, I think when it comes to the market itself too, you know, you you have certain tools that are set up to kind of monitor markets and you know you have ebay you have research tools that allow you to do your own research Um, you have all these things that exist to kind of build the market and establish it as a you know legitimate thing but at the same time there's always uh bad actors within that that you know you have to kind of navigate the waters there and use your own kind of uh yourself as the best defender from any of that and that's why you know having any kind of healthy level of skepticism is gonna you know a help you as a collector but also it's gonna help the hobby in the long run um opposed to you know just paying you know two and a half times over comps to get a card because you're kind of uninformed about something that's very very well said the the flip side to that coin is that while we maintain a healthy amount of skepticism, you also don't want to go down a rabbit hole of negativity that consumes you and blossoms into a paranoia that prevents you from enjoying the hobby or from being an active participant and a participant that can flourish in the hobby. Yeah. You just have to be informed. You have to do your research. You have to do your homework. You have to be careful. You have to be diligent. But you can't be weighed down and burdened by a paranoia that's unjustified. Yeah. And I mean, just taking this article and comparing it, you know, with all this, you know, investment, oh, I'm going to buy X amount of shares of Einstein's like papers, you know, like how can you, you know, there's not a lot of research you can do unless like, you know, you're, you're available to like some exclusive, exclusive, excuse me, like auction house data that nobody else has or something like that to actually prepare yourself for a market like that, I feel like. So in general, comparing, you know, this kind of scenario where you have just almost like a, you know, somebody that's been duped into something and really isn't informed about what they're purchasing, you know, you look to the flip side of where, where we're at right now, currently in the state, like of, you know, sports cards there's a lot of tools out there and things that allow you to have the information to be informed. So it is just about informing yourself 
and making sure that you actually have that information and you are confident in what you're you're making a decision as um, and, and going with that to purchase, you know, whatever kind of card you want. I think it, it completely spells out what the difference is between being like a, a collector and like maybe more of an investor where like if anybody ever tells you, oh, you want to own, you know, a share of this like card, like maybe that's not the best idea. Like you might want to think about like, why do they want, why are they trying to sell me this share of a card? You know, it's kind of a, you always have to be uh, a watchdog for that kind of stuff. Well said. What ultimately led to Gerard's decline was that several doyens of the rare book realm had become alarmed after looking into his background. So my friends, I encourage you all to be your own doyen in the hobby and do your research and do your research. Till next time, signing off. See you doyens later.